Please stand for the reading of God's word. The reading is uh, Colossians 2, 6 through 23. You can find it on page 984 in your pew Bibles. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you are circumcised with circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to the things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. This is God's word. encourage you to keep your Bibles open to Colossians, or open them back up, as it were, as we uh, continue a a special series through kind of an overview of Colossians, looking at uh, this season of refocusing our vision as a church. And as you're finding your way to Colossians again, let's pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you that you are God who speaks. We pray, Lord, that you would give us grace this morning to hear what you have to say. Lord, we know that there is nothing um, that we do or bring that can 
make us acceptable before you, but all of who you are and what you have done for us. And by your grace, we have this privilege of hearing from you. And so, Lord, may we not squander it this morning. May we hear, and may our hearts be changed. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, four farmers went out to sow seed. The first was the self-proclaimed expert in his field. He had been doing this the longest, and he knew what he was doing, and he knew how to do it right, how to get it done. He often looked with silent judgment on his fellow farmers who failed to follow his example or keep his rules. Rules that he had developed over years of perfecting his craft. Don't plant too close to the road. Stay inside the fence. Water your crops at this time on these days. Don't let any of them cross-pollinate with your neighbors. Show no mercy to weeds. Get rid of them immediately, even if that means pulling out good crop here or there. He pitied his fellow farmers, really. Because he knew that his system worked. Follow the rules and you will receive your harvest. If you find the harvest wanting in some way, then you must not have followed the rules. The second farmer grew up working for guys like the first and was convinced that he had it all wrong. There were better, faster ways of producing larger yields if you were willing to be innovative and push the envelope. You've got to stay ahead of the curve with the latest technology. Experiment with different methods. If you plant the seed shallower, a little closer to the surface, it will sprout faster. If you genetically engineer the seed, you can make it more acceptable to the environment you're planting in. Maybe alter the makeup slightly so it It acts a little bit more like native plants. In fact, the second farmer was willing at times to experiment with planting different seeds altogether or mixing those seeds in, whatever made for the largest yield possible. The third farmer looked with equal disdain on both the second and the first. In fact, he didn't even like the title farmer at all. The term had been ruined by judgmental jerks like the first guy or sellouts like the second. The third farmer was a purist, or so he thought of himself. He wanted to return to the freer, less organized way of farming that he imagined early farmers had employed. So he rejected the idea of growing crops and cultivated fields. He, he sowed his seed wherever he went, in ditches, along the roads, empty lots, his neighbor's garden. He believed, he believed that most farmers were too overbearing and that such heavy cultivation actually repressed the seed from realizing its full potential. And so once the seed was sown, he let nature take its course. No watering, no weeding, no pesticides, no domineering oversight. Just a bunch of ragamuffin gardens scattered to and fro, figuring out life together on their authentic journeys. Though the third farmer would not admit it, in the absence of attention, the weeds 
that grew up with his crops usually dominated the scene, such that what wasn't choked out early by them uh, was barely, re- barely distinguishable from the weeds come harvest time. Now, what's interesting, though, is that although these first three farmers despised one another, although they differed vehemently on how to farm, they had two things in common. They all wanted to see a harvest, and they all believed that the results were in their hands. The fourth farmer wanted to see a harvest as well, but he was less invested in his own control of the results. He wanted to be faithful, working hard, planting at the right time, watering when necessary, cultivating and and keeping the field as as free from weeds as possible. He knew that he had a lot more to learn, that he wasn't a perfect farmer, that he could even learn something from the other three. But he knew that the real growth happened not when he was out in the field doing his thing, but when he laid down to sleep at night. He knew that there was something else at work in the farming process, that there were forces at play far above him and beyond him, things that he could not control but instead must depend on. And he did depend on them, which is why he was able to sleep at night and why he enjoyed his harvest, whatever yield it produced. Now, of course, all of that is a parable, uh, a parable with an implied question. When it comes to gospel ministry, what kind of farmer are we, and what kind of farmer should we be? One that depends on earthbound perspectives and man-made schemes to produce the harvest, or one that looks above and beyond ourselves, depending solely on Christ for growth? We've been using uh, a lot of agricultural metaphors the last few weeks in our survey of Colossians, not because I grew up in Nebraska and that's the only kind of metaphor I know. Uh, <clears throat> didn't actually grow up on a farm. My dad's an accountant. I had to learn these things. Uh, rather, it's because Paul uses several agricultural metaphors in Colossians as he describes how the gospel of Jesus works. It is bearing fruit in chapter 1, verse 6. It's bearing fruit and increasing in the whole world, just as it did among the Colossians. In other words, it is growing outward as more and more people turn away from sin and come to faith in Christ. It's also growing upward, moving God's people toward a steadfast maturity in Christ as they learn to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in their knowledge of God. But that growth, both outward and upward, will only happen if God's people remain anchored downward, rooted in Christ. Chapter 2, verse 6, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith. So Paul uses a lot of agricultural metaphors to show how Jesus is uniquely qualified to restore God's broken world and redeem our broken lives. He is supreme above all creation and sufficient for our redemption. 
and reconciliation with God. Which means that as we move forward in this journey of kind of refocusing our vision, looking for clarity and specificity, it means we must be driven by the gospel. That, what, that who Jesus is and what he's accomplished, that is the heart uh, of a gospel-driven church moving forward. But that doesn't mean that there aren't plenty of distractions along the way. Plenty of competing perspectives on the best way to get results. The best way to produce a harvest. Ideas, systems, strategies that sound spiritual and and plausible, but aren't really dependent on Christ. That actually, therefore, threaten to confuse us or disenchant us with the sufficiency of Christ. Making us feel as though, you know, if, if we just, that we're missing something. That, that there's got to be something more to this whole farming enterprise, this whole gospel ministry. That, that we're missing something. We need something more, something else. We heard Naveen's story earlier. You know, one of the biggest challenges growing up in India was that there were so many alternatives to Christ. And even in the church in India, he, he found himself having to navigate through these alternative ways of following Christ. And though it might look different, the same is true in every place and every age. Not only as we come to know Christ, but as we serve Christ, that there are alternative means and ideas for how to produce a harvest. There is a great temptation in every age to try and serve God without actually depending on God. To try and serve God without actually depending on God. To depend on something other than Jesus for the results of ministry. And that's what Paul turns his attention to in chapter 2, verses 6 through 23. And what we want to consider this morning, what we might Think of as the threats to a gospel-driven church. What are the threats that, that risk getting in the way? Paul was aware of these kinds of threats as he ministered to various churches, and he took them seriously. So much that after describing the sufficiency of Jesus, which is a drum he just keeps beating throughout the letter, after describing the sufficiency of Jesus and, and his desire for the Colossians to be fully assured in that in in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, he says in 2, verse 4, I say this about Jesus, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. There were some who were trying to water down the sufficiency of Christ, saying that you're missing something. There's something more. There's something else to really walking with God. And it sounded plausible when they explained it. And so Paul is, is, is trying to work against that, to keep them anchored in Jesus alone. He says something similar after exhorting them in, in chapter 2, 6, and 7, that just as they receive Christ, they need to walk in him, rooted and, and um, built up in him, and established in the faith. He says this in verse 8. See to it, that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, 
and not according to Christ. There were threats, traps, things that risked taking the church captive that Paul was working against as he sought to deepen the Colossians' faith. Now, when we look back, we're not exactly sure um, what the so-called Colossian heresy was that Paul was dealing with. Um, on the one hand, it, if you just read what he says about it in chapter 2, it looks kind of like a carryover from their pagan background. So the church there in, in ancient Colossae was mostly Gentile or non-Jewish. And the references to the worship or the placation of angels to visions to asceticism being, you know, beating yourself and down so you'll be, you know, more acceptable to God, those kinds of things. That sounds really pagan um, and not very Jewish. But then on the other hand, there are things like dietary restrictions on food and drink and, and the special festivals mentioned in verse 16 that do have a background in Israel's Mosaic Covenant. And so, so we're not exactly sure what the precise nature of the so-called heresy Paul was dealing with. It looks somewhat like a mishmash, uh, you know, a syncretistic hybrid where some of the Colossians tried to infuse their Christianity with a little paganism, a little pagan practice, a little Jewish practice, such that they ended up with a Frankenstein version of Christianity that wasn't really pagan, Jewish, or Christian. And that's kind of what Paul's dealing with. But what's fascinating, even though we can't put a finger on exactly the kind of false teaching, what's fascinating is the motive behind this mishmash. It doesn't appear that the false teachers or whoever they are were trying to invent a new religion to draw people away. It appears that they're really trying to serve God. And they think they've come up with a better way. They have their eyes on the harvest, a harvest of relationship, trying to deepen their intimacy with God. In verse 18, that's, that's the purpose of all these weird rituals, a harvest of righteousness. They're trying to, quote, stop the indulgence of the flesh in verse 23. They're trying to turn away from sin. The problem, according to Paul, is that they're trying to do these things apart from Christ. They're trying to serve God without really relying on God. And Paul makes that clear in several ways. So look again at verse 8 there. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human traditions, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and here's the main point, not according to Christ. That's the problem. Where, whatever these traditions and principles are, wherever they came from, the major problem is that they don't accord with Christ. And he makes a similar point later in verse 18. His criticism of these religious practices is, and th is that those who are advocating them are, quote, not holding fast to the head, that is Christ, from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. And so the biggest criticism, the biggest challenge of whatever they're dealing with is this stuff doesn't come from Jesus and doesn't accord with Jesus. So where does it come from? If it's not from God above, it comes from the earth below. 
as Paul puts it in verse 8, it's that which accords to human tradition, to man-made rules. That which accords to elemental spirits or elemental principles, the, the components or forces of this earthly realm. And he mentions both of those things again at the end of the passage. He starts by talking about it. He ends by talking about the elemental spirits of the world in verse 20. The regulations that accord to human precepts and teaching, verse 22. So in other words, these regulations, these rules, these strategies and principles come from this world. This fallen world and what it is capable of producing. They're not part of heaven's plan. They arise from below. They are man-made and earth-bound. It's what you might call spirituality from below. Serving God without depending on God. Looking instead to human effort, human strategies, human rituals, human regulations, human traditions, human rules, human criteria. What we can come up with. Sometimes drawing on the resources of the pagan world. Sometimes you know, basically taking the best of what this world has and trying to beef up Christianity with it, or sometimes drawing on ancient rituals from, from Judaism before Jesus showed up, as though those rituals have, you know, something to offer apart from the person they pointed to, Christ. And what happens, wherever we're getting our resources from, what happens when we build our spirituality from below, when we... Uh, try to relate to God and serve God from what we can do or come up with in order to try and please him rather than trusting in the God who's come down from heaven to us. What happens, what we discover is two things. First, that man-made religion is empty. Man-made religion is empty. It produces a hollow spirituality that's focused on the external forms what we do, and incapable of producing lasting change. It's empty. So, external forms, like verse 16, food and drink and a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These forms or rituals, rather than the person that they point to. Verse 17, to Jesus. These are the shadows of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So we focus on the form instead of the person. And these forms are incapable of producing lasting change. So if you look at verse 23, they have the appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So all of these rules, all of these forms and strategies and none of them are capable of promoting spiritual growth. In the end, they result in one of two things, either pride or despair. Pride, when we're really good at keeping the rules, and despair, when our humanity catches up to us and we can't keep them, and we know it, and we feel a constant guilt because of it. Man-made religion is empty, powerless to produce lasting change. That's the first thing you realize when you take a close look at it. The second thing is that it's also divisive. It's divisive. 
So it can't produce lasting change, but instead of building up the body and and promoting unity, it actually tears it apart. It tears apart the community of faith. Look what happens as a result of these man-made rules that edge out Jesus. Paul says in verse 16, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to a new moon or a festival or a Sabbath. So when we build our spirituality on human tradition and principles, we create a community that's marked by judgment. Those who don't abide by the rules fall under the judgment of others. And Paul's saying, if you're rooted in Christ, don't listen to that judgment. Because that's the nature of a man-made religion. It, It creates judgmentalism. Or verse 18, Paul says, let no one disqualify you insisting on uh, all sorts of man-made practices. When we build our spirituality from below, the inevitable outcome is a self-righteous exclusion of those who are deemed inferior and insufficient, who can't play by the rules or won't play by the rules or whatever. If you can't keep it up, you're disqualified. The body is torn apart. So when we try to serve God without depending on God, Paul says, we have been taken captive. We have been taken captive, trapped in a swirling cycle of pride and despair and judgmentalism and insecurity and frustration and competitiveness and disappointment. All because we have centered our spirituality, our relationship with God and our service to God, we've centered it on ourselves rather than on Christ. So, what does that look like today? As we think about our call to move forward in gospel ministry, what does that look like today in our context? Uh, Let's go back to the parable of the four farmers for a minute. By the way, that's not a parable from the Bible, just in case you're like, where's that at? Is that Matthew 13? Um, Think about that again. There are endless ways to replace Jesus with something else in our life or in our ministry. But the, the first three farmers represent three dominant movements in the culture of the American church over the last several decades, each of which, as we said earlier, genuinely wants to see a harvest but believes the results are in their own hands. And so the first farmer is what we might call legalistic fundamentalism. The assumption that because we've been doing this for a long time, we have this figured out. It's a legalistic fundamentalism. We've got nothing left to learn from others. Uh, And essentially what happens is that we turn ministry into a formula. We know that we're, what we're doing. We know the best way to get it done. And the key is keeping the rules. Rules developed over years of perfecting our craft in ministry. Rules that if you keep them, God will bless. That's the formula. If you keep the rules, God will bless. If he doesn't bless, you must not be keeping the rules. Rules like... Don't plant too close to the road or stay inside the fence. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Chapter 2, verse 21. 
So think about it. If, if the line of sin is here, according to Scripture, but we, what we do is we build a fence clear over here in order to keep you from even getting close to that line. But then what happens is that fence becomes the new line. And if you don't stay on this side of the fence, we're going to judge you, even though this fence comes from us and not from God. God put the line here. But we know from years of doing it that it's just best to stay on this side of the fence. Or water your crops at this time on, on these days. This is how you spend time with the Lord in Bible reading and prayer. If you want him to bless your life in ministry, it's got to look like this. Fill in the blank. 30 minutes every day or whatever formula we've come up with. And if you don't do that, then you probably hate Jesus. Don't allow any cross-pollination cross -pollination to happen with your neighbors. You know, we can't control what those other teachers, those other preachers, and those other churches believe. So let's just stay safe and keep to ourselves. And not work with anybody else. Just keep it all in here where it's safe and under control. They're disqualified from fellowship. Or show no mercy to the weeds. You've got to get rid of them immediately, even if it means accidentally pulling out a good crop here or there. We must attack sin in our own lives and in our church with extreme prejudice. Make sure people know that holiness matters, that God won't tolerate sin, even if that pushes the weak ones away. It's this kind of legalistic fundamentalism. Some of us grew up in legalistic churches like that and are still recovering. Some of us, frankly, are prone to that kind of legalism because it feels safe. And we know what to do, we know what's expected of us, and we know what God will do if we keep the rules. If we just keep the rules, Westgate's going to thrive. I mean, we, we, we look at the moral chaos in the world around us, and we think, you know what? The church could do with a little less change and a few more rules. We're going to survive moving forward. But that is spirituality from below. Those are man-made rules that are empty of power. They result in an empty and divisive religion. They create a community that carries about in quiet desperation, like what Naveen shared earlier, showing up and nobody being free to be honest about their sin because everybody has to pretend like they've got it together or they're not going to be accepted. They're going to be disqualified for not keeping the rules. It's this quiet desperation and insecurity as we try to keep God happy and keep his people off of our back, all the while looking with silent judgment on others who ignore the rules. Rules that are actually powerless to produce change in our lives anyway. Because they don't come from God, they come from us. The second farmer is what we might call a shallow pragmatism. A shallow pragmatism. If it works, if it gets results, then God must be in it. We've experienced the drudgery and silent condemnation of the legalists, and we think there's a better way. There are faster ways of producing larger yields if you're willing to be innovative and push the envelope. You know, to utilize 
all the latest technology. We've got to beat other churches to the best website and the best social media presence and the best podcasts and videos and so on. We've got to experiment with different methods, get creative with our ministry, show them this isn't your grandma's church. We're new, whatever. Um, if you plant your seed shallower, a little closer to the surface, it will to the surface, it will sprout faster. So don't weigh people down with too much Bible or too much theology. Just enough to get them in the door, but not so much that they'll feel uncomfortable and want to leave. If you genetically engineer the seed, if you change the message a little bit so that it feels more like native messages, well, it might be more acceptable. It might catch on quicker. People might like it, and so you cater to your audience. Figure out what they're really looking for and give that to them and then just sneak Jesus in on the side. The latest music, better programs, the best coffee, you've got to be relevant. Because if you do these things, then you'll break the 200 barrier or you'll break the 500 barrier or you'll get listed among the fastest growing churches in America or whatever. Now, the problem with all of this is not technology or change or innovation or understanding your audience. We've been asking a lot of those questions. We have much to learn in these areas. What are people in the Metro West hurting over? How can we minister the gospel? The problem with shallow pragmatism is that it becomes consumeristic. It is audience-driven. It's like marketing. All, and it's all about giving a product to the consumer that they're going to want. So figure out how God, help them figure out how God fits into their life and helps heal their wounds or, or achieve their dreams rather than helping them become conformed to Christ for the glory of God. It's man-driven instead of gospel-driven. And again, it makes ministry formulaic. If we do these things, God will bless it. Man-centered ministry from below. Now, the third farmer is what we might call vague spirituality. Vague spirituality. So you had the rigid legalism, and you had your shallow pragmatism. And, and the vague spiritualists, we've seen through that sham. We have seen the pain that both of them have caused, their poor results, especially among young people. And we believe there's an even better way, a more authentic way. We don't like the label Christian because there's so much baggage with it. We're going to call ourselves something different, something that resonates with people. And, and we're going to create a, a Christianity that's less defined, less programmed, less organized, more messy and real and raw. Because organized religion, that's the real threat to faith. That's the real threat. So there's no watering, there's no weeding, there's no pesticides, because heavy cultivating actually represses the seeds from reaching their full potential. So doctrine and authority... Those are nothing more than insidious plots to control people and keep them from following their heart. After all, what God really wants for us is to be happy, right? To realize our full potential, to be true to ourselves, to feel good about ourselves, to make a difference in the world. And if the Bible helps you do that, great. If a little Zen Buddhism helps you do that, no worries. 
whatever is going to produce the largest yield. Who am I to tell someone that something they love or enjoy is wrong? And we're just a ragamuffin band of misfits figuring out our life together on our own authentic journeys. We're spiritual. We're not religious. My church is the coffee shop or the pub or the gym. Wherever my heart's really alive, wherever I feel connected with people. And, and Jesus just is thrilled with that. This vague spirituality. Of course, the irony, uh, again, is that as much as those who prefer this vague spirituality despise fundamentalists and pragmatists, they're all playing the same game. Spirituality from below. Man-made, earthbound systems for seeking God or serving God without actually depending on God. And each of them are compelling in their own way. They all seem plausible from certain angles. Throwing off the shackles of the Bible and being true to yourself is about the sexiest thing a millennial can do today. I mean, that is hip. That's cool before it was cool. But there's a deadly irony to it. It is a trap. It is a trap. Beth Moore sounded this alarm earlier this year when she said to a crowd of 55,000 college students, quote, you will watch a generation of Christians, of Christians, set the Bible aside in an attempt to become more like Jesus. And stunningly, it will sound completely plausible. This will be perhaps the cleverest of all the devil's schemes in your generation, the young generation. Sacrifice truth for love's sake. That makes sense from certain angles. But it is a trap. Because both truth and love are real. And you can't get rid of one without destroying or diluting the other. As Moore says, we need to have the courage to live in the tension of both truth and love. We cannot serve God without depending on God. As tempting as that's going to be, you know, as tempting as it is because, you know, it's easier to just come up with a set of rules and keep them. It's easier to, to do all of these different things. We cannot do it because... It's just not going to be real. I mean, depending on God is hard. It means waiting, for instance. Waiting for Him to do something. It means praying. That's hard work. And it does mean hard work. It doesn't mean being lazy or kicking back. But it means that we're not in control. We're not in control. But thankfully, we don't have to be. And the real freedom in serving God comes from recognizing not only that he's in control, that, that the results, that the harvest are, is in his hands, but that he has given us everything that we need to know him and serve him through his completely sufficient son, Jesus. That's the big point that Paul 
made in our passage last week. That's the big point he makes again in this passage this week in verses 9 through 15. After he warns the Colossians not to be taken captive, here's why. You don't need any of that stuff that's threatening to trap you up. For in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is head of all rule and authority. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. He's made you new, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The gospel is not about what we do to impress God or serve God, or make it up to God for all of our mistakes. It's about what Jesus has done. What only Jesus can do. It's about who he is. The fullness of God dwelling bodily. God in the flesh. So, we don't have to make our way up to God because he's already come down to us in Jesus. It's about It's about what Christ has done to make us new. We don't have to muster the strength to to follow him because Christ has stripped us of all of our corrupt flesh. He's united us with him in his death. We don't have to come up with new ideas for cultivating spirituality, new fresh ways of making it happen because Christ himself has filled us with his spirit and He is our sufficient resource as we seek to know and serve God. We don't have to try harder to make it up for our failures. Jesus has taken that list and nailed it to the cross. We are guilty no more. We don't have to come up with the strength to keep serving God every day because we have been raised with Christ. And the same power that raised him from the dead is at work in our lives and our hearts. And when we believe that, when we believe that, there is freedom and joy in serving God. Apart from Christ, there is fear and insecurity and anxiety and drudgery and judgmentalism and jockeying, competition. In Christ, there is freedom and joy in serving God, free from anxiety, insecurity, guilt, Because Jesus is enough for every single one of us. We don't have to make it up to him. We don't have to try harder. We trust Jesus. And he gives the strength to follow him. As Paul puts it in uh, verse 29, chapter 1, verse 29, we work hard, we work hard, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within us. 
And so serving God without depending on God, that is a trap. Depending on Christ frees us for service. That's the posture of the fourth farmer. Knowing that there's something else at work in this process, there are forces in play above and beyond us that we cannot control but must instead depend on. Which doesn't mean we've arrived or have nothing left to learn or anything like that. It doesn't mean we do nothing. On the contrary, it means we work hard and we pray hard because if God doesn't show up, nothing's going to happen. But it means that our confidence in ministry, whatever God calls us specifically to as a congregation, our confidence in ministry is not in ourselves, our tactics, our methods, our strategies, our programs. It's not in how inspiring our new vision statement might be. It's in Christ. It's in Christ. And his word will do its work because the cross is sufficient And the Spirit is here. You have been filled in Him. And so we can sleep at night knowing that the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day. And the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that this doesn't depend on us. We thank you that by your grace you've included us in your mission to see lives changed. Just as you have changed our lives through the gospel, you call us to bear witness in love and word and deed that others might be changed as well. And that is your incredible grace to include us in that process. But Lord, we confess and praise you that the results aren't in our hands. And so we pray for faith. We pray for faith to believe your word and what you will do, what you want to do through us. We pray for willing hearts eager to follow you and share with others that they might follow you. Most of all, we praise you that your grace changes everything. And we pray that you, through that, would receive the glory due your name. We ask it in your name. Amen.